You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to GI Insights, where we cover the latest clinical issues, trends, and technologies in gastroenterological practice. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. Your host for GI Insights is Professor of Medicine and Director of the Digestive Disease Center at the Medical University of South Carolina, Dr. Mark DeLeggi. The topic is sedation for endoscopy, propofol. What are the training, medical, legal, and societal aspects of this medication generally used for deep sedation? Joining us to discuss sedation and endoscopy with propofol is Dr. Lawrence Cohn. Larry is an associate clinical professor at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York City. Welcome, Larry. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. My first question is, the GI societies, the ASGE, the ACG, and the AGA, what's their position on propofol and the use of propofol by the gastroenterologist? The societies have come out jointly with a statement. This was in early 2004 in which they supported the use of propofol by gastroenterologists that were appropriately trained. This so-called tri-society position statement on sedation is available online. Essentially, what they say is that physician-supervised nurse administration of propofol can be done safely and effectively. And so they issued that statement in 2004, and they have reiterated it several times since in a variety of publications, and they have a, it will again be reiterated in a multi-society statement that will be coming out in the next six months. Well, it sounds like we covered some of the safety issues with regards to the literature with the gastroenterologist administering propofol and the fact that it's been done very well. My question is, if, if you're sitting there as a patient and an anesthesiologist is delivering the propofol or a gastroenterologist... Is there a cost difference to the patient? I mean, are the patients aware of that? And in fact, is there a cost difference? Well, yeah. The answer, as you're well aware, is that there is certainly a, an additional cost. And the question really, I think, then becomes who, you know, who was going to bear this added cost? Is it, is it a necessary cost? And... What will the impact of that added cost be for gas for practicing gastroenterologists? What will the impact be on reimbursement rates for endoscopy? And do we, as a professional society, want to accept perhaps a reduction in reimbursement in exchange for delegating that responsibility to another provider? I think there are many, many issues here. If you look across the country, we looked at this several years ago where we looked at uh, reimbursement rates for anesthesia services during endoscopy, and the reimbursement rates vary enormously. I mean, they vary almost tenfold. Medicare reimburses at a rate of about $100 or so per case. There are third-party and commercial payers that reimburse well over $1,000 so that the range of reimbursement varies enormously. When we looked at this 
and looked at the average reimbursement, it was about $280 per case. Now, if you multiply that 280 by the number of endoscopies that are currently being done with propofol by anesthesiologists, and again, it's somewhere between 35 and about 40% of all procedures, and if you assume that there are about 20 million endoscopies and colonoscopies done per year, you're looking at the present time, you're looking at a cost to society somewhere between 2 and $3 billion. And if you then extend that out and assume that there's a 100% uptake of anesthesia use rather than the current 35 or 40%, and you apply that to those same figures, you then come to realize that the cost of providing anesthesia to all endoscopies in this country alone will exceed $5 billion per year. So the costs are are really quite enormous. If the drug has been shown to be safe to be delivered by the gastroenterologist, and also it's preferred by patients and often by gastroenterologists because it's a short-acting agent, and you're talking about the cost data here, my next question is, why is the ASA, the big body of anesthesiologists representing anesthesiology, opposed to the gastroenterologist delivering propofol? Because I've heard them come out with statements that say the gastroenterologist should not be delivering propofol. It's a difficult issue, and I think that there are very heartfelt beliefs on both sides of the issue, on the side of the anesthesia community as well as the GI community. From the perspective of the anesthesiologist, there are, I think, some of the, there are some scientific and medical issues, and obviously there are also some proprietary and economic issues that they strongly believe in. From a medical and scientific standpoint, their arguments are as follows. They argue that propofol is a so-called deep sedation agent and that it's much easier with this ultra-fast-acting drug for patients to move between different states uh, and levels of sedation than it is with a benzo opioid. And, in fact, that's true. They argue that there is no reversal agent for propofol, unlike benzo and opioids, each of which have an antagonist, and that also is true. But what they really stand behind, Mark, when they make their medical argument is the fact that the product label, that is the FDA package insert that was put together jointly by the FDA and the company that developed Diprovan, that the product label states that physicians using this should be trained in the administration of anesthesia agents. And so they really stand behind the product label, even though there are good reasons today while that may not be justifiable, and perhaps the label should be changed. However, going beyond some of the medical issues, and we could get into a discussion of each of those and why each of those arguments are no longer valid, but going beyond that, I think the other reason that I think really must be stated, you know, for everyone to understand, is that there is an enormous economic reason for the anesthesia community to continue to administer 
monitor anesthesia care for endoscopy, and that gets back to what we talked about a few minutes ago, that this is potentially anywhere from a three to five billion dollar a year market. Anesthesiologists make two to three times as much money providing monitor anesthesia care for endoscopy as they do if they're working in a hospital environment providing general anesthesia for uh, sick inpatients and outpatients undergoing elective procedures so that from a financial as well as a quality of life standpoint, they make two or three times as much money and have a tremendously improved quality of life. So there are both of those issues that I think help to understand why anesthesia providers want to continue to hold on to this business model. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mark DeLegge, and joining me today to discuss propofol for sedation and endoscopy is Dr. Larry Cohen. Dr. Cohen is an associate clinical professor at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine in the big city of New York. Larry, you've clearly stated your position here about the economic issues with propofol and also about the safety issues. I guess my question is, as a gastroenterologist, if I wanted to deliver this drug, even with the labeling as it is today, what's the medical legal ramifications? Meaning, am I at risk if I use it? It's a great question. And unfortunately, we don't really have any great answers. A number of people have tried to look at this from a medical legal perspective and to at least look at this in theoretical terms and ask what would take place in a court of law if this were to come to that. Fortunately, to my knowledge, there have been no cases that have been brought to court where a non-anesthesiologist, and more specifically a gastroenterologist, has been charged, has been sued for administering propofol. I think that alone tells you something since, as we said, there are over 500,000 such cases that have been performed. So there are no malpractice actions that have been brought against gastroenterologists. So everything that we say really is just conjecture and uh, guesswork. Certainly, the product label would be brought into evidence for the plaintiff. They would certainly submit the FDA product label. They would certainly bring into court the fact that there's a black box warning that indicates the drug should be administered by by people trained in anesthesia. On the other hand, I think that attorneys for the defense would counter that today that there is a respectable minority of physicians that are well-trained, that have administered this drug appropriately and safely, and this constitutes just one of many, many examples that exist of so-called off-label use of a product. 10 to 20% of all prescriptions today are written for off-label use of drugs, as you know, and this may simply just represent another such example. Larry, if you were going to advise someone about getting training delivering propofol today, meaning they had no experience with it, what would you suggest? I think there are really four elements 
that uh, that really need to be satisfied in order to for me to be comfortable uh, supporting someone's uh, desire and application to administer propofol. And uh, Mark, this uh, this really is going to be codified uh, and put into a training document. Uh, I was part of a group of people that have put together a document on propofol use, and uh, there's a section on training. Uh, and, and really what it says is the following, that we recommend that, uh, that a training program uh, consist of, first, a didactic training session. During the didactic training session, that individuals really learn about, about the pharmacology uh, and the biochemistry of propofol so that there be a didactic session. Number two, that there be an airway skills workshop when individuals learn more than uh, uh, the standard education today about airway management skills. Um, I think it's highly desirable, although not absolutely mandatory, that uh, endoscopists... uh, Planning to use propofol, go through some kind of a simulation training where they learn to recognize and manage critical events. Uh, these would include uh, everything from uh, airway management skills to cardiopulmonary resuscitation skills, arrhythmias, and so on. And last, but certainly not least, uh, is their preceptorship. Um, I think that there should be some uh, opportunity for physicians to and their sedation team to work under the direct supervision and observation of a physician that has experience and skill in giving propofol. This experienced uh, preceptor can be another endoscopist or it could be an anesthesia provider, but they should be able, but they should have some opportunity to do this real-time with real patients and doing real procedures uh, under under direct supervision before working independently. I'd like to thank my guest from the Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York, Dr. Larry Cohen, for spending time with us today to discuss the very important topic of propofol for sedation and endoscopy. Dr. Cohen, thank you very much for being our guest this week on GI Insights. You're welcome. Thank you, Mark. You have been listening to GI Insights on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. For additional information on this program and on-demand podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com and use promo code AGA.